What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Leist, here with my good friend and co-host, Richard Harris. And today, we are joined by Ryan Staley. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Whale Boss in the Chicago area, and uh, just recently kind of stepped off into the solopreneur world uh, somewhere in the last six months or so. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, stoked to be doing the uh, three-man weave with you guys right now, so it should be a, a good time. Ready, ready to get into some nuggets and uh, hopefully provide a lot of value for your listeners. Nice. We are uh, brought to you today and all month long in September by our sponsors, lead411.com and gong.io. And uh, we appreciate their support. You guys should check them out. Lead411 for all of your intent data needs. Gong for your revenue intelligence. Two good companies for you to check out there. So, Ryan, first thing I noticed is you graduated university in 1999, which means we must be basically the same age. So I like that. I'm no longer uh, the baby. And, uh, you know, <laughs> last couple episodes, Richard has kind of picked on me because the guests have been a little older. So I'm, I'm glad I have a peer here. Just means we have two yeah. babies. That's all. Yeah. Oh, I'm the baby. So we're the now babies. It's, now it's just okay. twins I got to contend with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell, tell everybody, Ryan, about, um, you know, a, real quickly, like, what are you up to? What's Whale all about? And, um, you know, what's your sales like? background and expertise so people have context on your um on your you know comments and and our our conversation yeah so they know i'm not just some random on your show that they paid to be here uh, so yeah so just to give you a, a quick snapshot on me i've uh i've been in sales since uh 1999 actually 1998 scott so she, she she brought that up and hit on that um, I would get into some of the nuances deeper, but basically in a sales position for about 12, 13 years, and then a sales leadership position for 10 and started off from the, uh, the grittiest of all areas, door to door, went to inside sailor, sales in like a boiler room type environment. So I had that awesome experience. It was uh, almost like hazing. And then on top of it, hit outside sales. And then when I was in the leadership position, you know, one of the things that happened was that I was brought there to start kind of rebuild the office and then essentially build an enterprise group from scratch. So over the last six and a half years, that's what we did, grew revenue from zero to 30 million in that uh, department, annual reoccurring revenue with like four reps on average. And um, so my focus has been enterprise sales. And what happened is essentially I decided to move on from the, the corporate life that uh, I've been living through my entire career and shifted to the solopreneur world right now that I'm going to grow into it and really serve others because I see one of the biggest challenges out there right now is the level of failure that sales folks have in terms of, I think, and I was studying whether it's CSO insights, 67% of people don't even make their quota. You look at other reports with like outside sales, it's like 80 or I should say 75% of people don't even make 80% of their quota. So it's, it's getting out of hand and I've learned a lot by helping Whose others. Whose fault is that? Who do you blame? Is it the rep's fault or is it executive leadership? I, it's, it's a complex question that you have to answer, but I think it's multiple areas. So I think when you look at it, it's, it's a combination of the psychology of the leadership. 
the training and the development and the hiring. And then on top of it, you got to look at some of the ownerships on the rep as well. But I think all four of those areas kind of. Let me, but let me ask you this. So you're, you're, what's your favorite sports team? The Bears, the Chicago Bears would be my favorite sports team. The Bears lose 80% of their games, right? Mm -hmm. That means they, that means they win what three in a season is the coach staying or no? Uh, it depends if the GM just hired him or not. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know about that. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> There's a lot of one and yeah. done. These I don't days. know. 80%. A lot of one and done. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's a great question. And, but, and it, but, but here's my point. I don't believe that those athletes are any less professional. I don't believe they're any less mm -hmm. athletic. Um, there could be some skill stuff there. Right. But ultimately it is up to the, to them to set the right expectations. Right. And to manage those to the expectations. Now, to your point, if you've got irreverent people on mm -hmm. the team and those who are cancerous, that can certainly cause some level of effect, but not 80%, in my opinion, 70%, even 60%. So, you know, it's, it's tough. And look, I'm a Bronco fan. We haven't had a lot of winning seasons since Peyton left. So, you know, at some point you're right. There's a little bit of a rebuilding that goes on. Um, but you know, I, I don't think there's enough onus on even the VCs who allow these numbers to be created and accept them as much as, you know, even the CEOs who wish for them. Yeah. It, it, it's a great point. It, it all ultimately resides at the, the mentality of the ownership group, whatever ownership group that is, whether it's um, publicly VCs, private equity, private, you know, it all kind of flows down from there. But uh, Richard, I think you hit something on the head, man. It's a lot of it's built in a spreadsheet, you know, and, and say, this is what you have to get with always, not always knowing the mechanics behind it. So how do, what do you say? So, and let's talk about both sides. Like I'd love, let's say you go in and you work with an organization, particularly on the enterprise side, and maybe it's not 80, maybe they're not missing by 80%, mm -hmm. but what do you coach the executive team and the reps? Cause you're, there is some truth to this. Like I won't, you know, I know I sort of get on the soapbox about it, but what do you do as that person who's coming in to give advice? What kind of advice would you give to that executive leader and what would you give to the team? Well, and it's, it's kind of like what we teach the sales folks. You really got to understand the situation. You know, there's not going to be a cookie cutter approach, whether it's the challenges are the front of the funnel, like getting the right quantity and quality in the pipe, whether it's the pipe or the execution or the process. It's kind of like, System execution and process are like the three areas you look at, in my opinion. And then personnel-wise, like, and I'm, I'm approaching it from the leadership perspective, right? Um, the mentality and the values of the people that you hired, um, and, and how they're kind of moving through that. Because, I mean, if you look at it, there's a, there's like the art and the science of sales, right? And I know you guys talked to to Jake Dunlap about this on, on one of your most recent episodes, but the execution often falls into the art aspect of it. And, um, but I, I think there's some science to that as well. And at the same time, like how people are executing in the individual components, whether, like I said, it's the sales, the pipe or the other area. So, so you, that's from the leadership. You spent, you spent a good amount of time <clears throat> working strategic and enterprise type accounts, right, Ryan? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, do, what do people misunderstand about the enterprise sales process and closing those kind of deals that you could uh, illuminate for us? Yeah, so uh, something that I saw a lot is people would spend either months 
or sometimes even years focused on the wrong person in, in the account. And what's happening now is like, you know, you see stats out there that there's like on average eight people involved in a sales cycle. We are talking enterprise, it could be 15, it could be 30. And they might get positive feedback from one silo that isn't even the budget holder or the future budget holder. And so they'll waste all the time saying the right things to the wrong person. And so as a result, there's so much time that could be cut out there. Um, so that's, that's one thing, Scott. Something else tangible for, for you, the listener, is that um, also when you're, when you're looking at it is cross-pollinating and collaborating both up and down and horizontally with companies. You know, you see a lot of folks that'll get targeted and narrowed in, even if they are focused on the right person, let's say it's IT, but they never engage the business unit. Um, and so basically integrating those meetings up and down from the C-level down, but then also across those departments. So by the time you're trying to get to the end of the process, you're trying to move a big oil tanker. It's not like there's no more selling left to be done because everybody's pushing up to the executive team across multiple departments saying, hey, we got to do this. You know, so I would say those are, those are some of the biggest things. What about pushing something through legal, which is everybody's worst nightmare, right? And the millions of back and forth and red lines and all that kind of stuff. What kind of tips would you give sellers right now who, who are stuck in this back and forth and they're like, ah, I know they want to buy. I want them to buy. And the buyer's like, I really want to buy also. But what are some cool tips to navigate the, the legal redlining that you could, could help us out with? Yeah. So, and, and uh, are you saying when you're talking the negotiation process or just straight up like legal changes, like legal is just pounding the person because they're trying to mitigate. I'm, I'm, talking so about, I'm talking about like the contract has been returned back to the seller. Okay. The gotcha. other team's legal department has, you know, taken their red pen out and scratched all over the place. And you're like, Oh shit, what do I do now? Right. Yeah. So uh, something that, that I've seen work really well, especially with big opportunities is co-authoring. So like once you kind of get the verbal, like, Hey, we're going to, do this we're going to partner now we just got to go through the negotiation process is co-authoring like a project plan with the the customer or prospect to completion with actually dates and milestones so the thing is if i've seen if you work collaborative with collaboratively with them and they start to align all their resources for those dates or those markers then what happens is if you start going through the legal process and it keeps getting delayed they'll take onus if you coach them the right way and push back and say, Hey, we got resources lined up for the second week of the month, the fourth week of the month, so on and so forth. So it'll leverage them to start pushing them. Um, so I've seen that work really well. Another thing that, that uh, has been a good tactic too is, you know, it's kind of like you got to find out with them ultimately what their biggest risk with, with the biggest risk they're trying to mitigate um, and legal. And a lot of times people, sometimes they, <laughs> they get charged. You think they're getting charged by the letter or they're getting paid by the letter with the, the, the crap that they, they uh, X out. Um, but in terms of doing that, eventually it gets to the point where you go to your champion, you're like, Hey, like this is getting borderline ridiculous. And if they're not on the call, you have them on the call or you coach them exactly how to, to work around. So there's just a couple examples. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and then did, did this, did the experience in the enterprise world <clears throat> um, give you more confidence to move into entrepreneurship than, than, you know, if you'd been in mid-market or SMB or is it totally different? Yeah, I, so I think, so any kind of sales is entrepreneurship and training, in my opinion. It's like, because half of what you do if you're creating your own company is selling. I don't care what you're selling. Half of, half of it's sales or marketing, I can say it. So for me, it gave me, yeah, I would definitely say it gave me more credit because throughout that process, I was essentially selling to some of the smartest people in the world, to the biggest companies in the world. And then the cool thing in being a leader is I got a bird's eye view of so many different opportunities. But at the same time, it taught me patience because the sales cycles are so freaking long. And, and so throughout that, there was so much grit that had to have been established as a result of it that I, I think is like the fiber of my being now. And so, so talk, like little stuff happens and it doesn't bother Yeah, me. I, we hear this word and it's interesting because I feel like we've heard the word grit several times in the last week. Um, <laughs> what does grit mean though? Like talk about it tactically as well as emotionally. Like we get the concept, right. we get it. But particularly in these long, and, and when you say an enterprise style cycle, you know, are you talking 12 to 18 months, two years? Are you talking seven figures, high six figures? Yeah. So uh, well, I'll give you a frame of reference first, Richard, and it's a great clarifying question. So anywhere from like what I would say, and it, enterprise is different, but the scope that I'm looking at it through the deals were anywhere from 500K to 20 million plus. So that was kind of the range. And then the length, I would say, like the sales cycle length, uh, we did a study on it at my previous position, it was like, on average, it was a 10 month sales cycle with some going a couple of years. You know what I mean? From that perspective. Right. So how do you then, and that, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. So now define grit. Yeah. So and I think you're right. There's the emotional component. And I, I noticed like you, you put a lot of great posts out there about like the emotional aspects of like working through things. And I was going to tell you that I saw that, but that was, that was awesome. I've seen it on, on LinkedIn. Um, but like, I'll give you an example. So there was a, what is a $16 billion company we were selling to. And emotionally, they basically tell, told us after they told us, so they told us, we're going to move forward with you. And then after that, they told us two or three times that we can't do this. <laughs> so it's a deal you're working on for a year and a half almost, right? And then they tell you, yeah, you're, you're going to get this deal. And then you're getting farther in the process, you're negotiating, they're like, oh, we just found out we still have an agreement with someone on this piece, so we can't do anything. So what do you do? So that happens, right? You know, you're in, so how do you then tackle that objection? Right. And well, you just have to, it was so funny because I went through that stage with my team on so many different deals before, it didn't phase me, even though that was the largest deal we ever worked at the time. Yeah, but what did you do? How did you, how did you work it? I'm, yeah. I'm going to, I'm pushing you hard because this is what people, people want to hear this stuff. Yeah. Right? No. So, and that's what I was going to get to dude. So I love the point in this. Um, so yeah, so essentially what, what you have to do is you just can't stop. Like people are going to say no at the end of the process or have reasons. And most people fold up like a lawn chair. Yeah, but what do you, but again, what do you mean? We can't stop. I'm not letting you off the hook. No, so I'm, I'm not trying you. to get off. <laughs> I know. I'm just poking fun at you. No, no, so. that's cool, dude. So, so like, for example, like to get hyper tactical, they told me that and it's like, okay, well, let's talk through that. What exactly does that mean? 
get really specific. Why can't you do something all the way, all of a sudden now versus a week ago, you gave us the verbal approval and the whole committee approved on it. Mm -hmm. And so then the, the next statement was, well, we found out we have an agreement on this that is, you know, locked in, which it wasn't locked in, right? They just, the customer didn't totally understand what they were engaged with. So how did you get them to review that, right? Because a lot of time, and I think sales reps get nervous. Oh my gosh, I'm afraid to, to tell them they're wrong or, you know, show me the contract. Maybe I can see, you know, which is what we would all want to do. Right. How did you coach your team to, to your point, have grit, be respectful and help figure that out? Yeah. I would say that the key ingredient is whenever you have like a, massive disruption in a big deal is ask questions, ask clarifying questions and keep going layers and layers deeper because most of the time uh, when you're dealing with big companies, there's, there's misunderstanding about what's truly happening in the company and they make assumptions on stuff and they just think that that's it. But a lot of times you'll find out like, Oh, well, that comes up all the time. This is what you have to do. And you get to the core of what the real objection is versus just taking it at face value. So, so what did you, I would say, so what kind of things did you find were the real objection in the essence of, Hey, we don't think we can do this because there is a legal agreement. And granted the prospect may think that like, they may be right, like, yeah. Oh, legal has told us this. So I can't go against legal. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's where, um, the, the, it was our champion that told me that like literally this is we were saying I was on vacation with my family at Disney world and we went to the Olive garden. I was negotiating the contract in the Olive Garden, which we never go to Olive Garden, but you gotta love some breadsticks and salad, right? And he's freaking me telling me like, oh, we're not gonna go with this agreement. And so it's just like, okay, well, tell me exactly what happened. Sometimes it's political positioning of people that want their own guy in there or gal in there. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. But then you dig deeper, it's like, okay, well, why can't you do that? Well, basically um, we have an agreement that's in place, okay. Well, is it cancelable? Well, the one guy says it's not cancelable. Well, have you looked at the agreement? Have you looked at the T's and C's of that agreement? Is there a way where we could adjust the agreement down gradually and shift off it versus all of a sudden, you know, draw a line in the sand and cancel? You know, and, you know, who does that person report up to? Like, a lot of times there'll be a saboteur in the account that appears at the nth hour. And so that's usually who you're trying to deal with and trying to overcome with that. I love, I love the use of the word saboteur. Right there, that's that's fantastic. Thanks, man. Oh. Always happens. That, that might be that might be the title of the episode of how to handle the saboteur <laughs> of your big deals. Yeah, I want to know about the commission and the comp on a twenty million dollar deal. Yeah. What 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 should somebody be expecting who's in a sales role where they're literally closing deals of? of that size and scope? Are we talking about 5%, 10%, for how many years? How would you structure that, that comp on that type of a deal? And what should reps be looking for if they're thinking about taking on such a role? Sorry, cut out guys. You still with me? Yeah, we're Okay, so I heard you say, what is the commission size for a $20 million deal? What would... Yeah, like, how, how would you structure comp on that if you were going to build it out? Is, is it 1% of the, of the deal, 10% of the deal, 
paid out over a, a few years? Like, how do you, how would you structure that? And what should a rep be looking for if they're getting into that type of a uh, sales cycle in terms of their comp? Yeah. So uh, it's a great hard hitting question, Scott. I, I love it. The, the, the details, the, the nuts and bolts of it all. Show, so, show everybody the money, Ryan. To give you, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes, a hypothetical example of what one would do in a vacuum in a situation like that. Um, so like in terms of structuring comp, I would say you probably want to have a component where it's paid out upfront and then also a component that's a residual because we're talking like total contract value, right? It's like a, a reoccurring revenue opportunity. And so um, you could pay from a comp perspective, you could pay someone anywhere from 20 to 40% of the monthly payment upfront, depending on what your margins are. Uh, and depending on what the margin you have in the deal, you know, cause there could be a sliding scale there. And then in addition, give them a percentage of residual that's cause that's going to do a couple of things. It's going to want the rep to stay around and it's also going to want the rep to support the customer in the way that they need to be supported because they're continually getting paid off them. And that could range anywhere from, I've seen 2%, I've seen 4% of the monthly spend as well as a residual. So to break it into tangible dollars and cents, because people probably don't have their calculators out if they're driving their car or doing whatever the hell they're doing right now. Um, you know, if you're talking 500K, you got 30%, you could do 150K up front. Maybe you, you could cap that. Sometimes it's capped at, at like 100K. And then you get those residuals, which we're, at, we're talking 3%, that's 15K off that. What do you do when it's, hey, look, the average deal size is, you know, 150K for the year. You've got a st structured comp of, you know, 10% or something like that. And all of a sudden the whale comes in, right? It's, this, it's the million dollar deal. And now all of a sudden execs want to be, well, we're not paying you $100,000 on this deal. You know, no, 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 no. Is that fair? And, and if yes, great. If no, how does a rep you know, they need to get to the emotional side of that, but how do they properly negotiate and talk about what should be fair to them? Yeah, so I'm a big proponent that it's not fair. Um, I, I've seen those situations and it's one of the most damaging things in a relationship. If you pull back what you committed to uh, in terms of revenue. So I'm, I'm really against that because I've been in that situation before and it's, it's not cool. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real quick way to piss off your, your sales team. Yeah, oh yeah. And then it, it's, it's like an infection that spreads because yeah. everybody talks about that shit. So, um, I, and I've been in the situation too where I've had years where reps were making more than me as a leader, and, but they just killed it, you know? So that, that's part of the game, you know? And, and executives have equity and executives have other means and levers that they get paid. So I don't think you can look at it in a vacuum. Um, and then Richard, I think the other thing you asked was just about leadership and, and how to work with leadership. Um, one of the things that I'd encourage folks to do is when they're evaluating a company to work for is truly understand if it's a sales driven company or if it's an operations driven company. Yeah, that's uh, a great, that's a great point. Now, how would somebody, what are the questions somebody might ask in order to figure that out? Yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful thing about LinkedIn. But the questions you can ask is you could literally say, okay, like what's the background of the CEO? 
what's his primary focus in the business? Is he more sales orientated? Does he focus on operations? And that's usually really telling because if there's a sales driven CEO, from what I've seen in my experience, a lot of times they don't want to do that. They don't want to like pull back commissions or things like that. Whereas the ops guy is always looking at, not always, in some cases looking at margins all the time. And so that's a really quick question I would use to try and identify that. But are the margins the same and the margin the same on a seven figure deal as well as, and, and to a certain extent, the margins are either 30 times greater on a big deal. Yeah, um, they are. However, they look at it as like, okay, I could improve my EBITDA if for this big deal, we only paid out 20% instead of 30%. And because they're looking at it, not always, and it depends on the ownership group, but um, the investors, and I've seen a lot of operations focused companies take that I approach. Think, I think perhaps, perhaps the larger point that he's alluding to Richard is um, a, a, a founder or CEO who comes from a sales driven background is probably going to tread very carefully about diminishing sales commissions and affecting sales leaders and sales reps comp. That's just not where we might go to tinker, right? To try to improve the overall business where perhaps somebody who's got a finance background, who's in the founder role, that is where they go to tinker straight away. Am I putting words in your mouth, Brian, or is that kind of no, where you're going? I, I agree. And well, so Richard, what have you seen, man? Have you seen the, the similar parallels with, with folks or no? So, you know, in fairness, uh, I haven't been in the, the end user or the, or the bag carrier role or leadership role in about eight years. So I think things have gotten better. That's my impression. Um, but I still see it and hear about it. I probably see and hear about it more at the earlier stage startups, because to your point, it's about EBITDA and, and the next round of funding. And, you know, there's some of that. Um, I've, you know, I've encouraged reps to ask for, okay, don't pay me that. Give me extra equity. Mm -hmm. Give me the equivalent of that in some kind of equity form or even half the value in equity so that when this thing goes, I can earn it back later. Right. That's sort of the advice I've been trying to give people. And, that, that becomes a whole other, we got to go to the board and that's yeah. a different compensation. And now we're treating somebody different and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, and my answer to that is yes, but you're also treating me different because you're changing my comp mm -hmm. plan. Like, so it's, it's all about what is fair for everyone, not what's the least amount. And it's, you know, I get it. Like that's the CFO's job. That's, you know, the, the operations job, but it's also my job too. So, you know, it's, and so it's just one of those things that I think rubs me the wrong way from some deals I've had in my past. And maybe I've just got a hangover from it. And, you know, maybe I just want to be controversial too. You know, so if there's any VCs listening, you know, yes, I'll still work with well, you. But, you know, <laughs> no, and then just expect honest answers. That's, that's awesome, man. I mean, that's awesome advice because you're like, hey, listen, I, I still execute on what I needed to do. You know, and the other thing, this is outside the VC world, but I've seen it also on the other side. I've seen it at a mature company. And then the private owner sells to a private equity company and they leave things alone for the first few, few years, but then they start getting stoked and ready to sell and they want to make the books look as attractive as possible. So they they look at ways where they could cut, you know? So there's, yeah, there's all sorts of scenarios you run into. Yeah, but you wouldn't be able to sell it at all if I didn't bring in that big deal. 
right? Like that's, again, like how do you keep battling this argument in a fair way? So it's, I'm going to get off this horse because we'll, we're going deep on it and <laughs> I don't need to beat it anymore. But uh, that's cool. thanks thanks for entertaining that part of the conversation. Now, now, now that you're doing, <clears throat> you know, coaching and training and everything, Ryan, and, and maybe this question goes for Richard too because you guys are both in the same world now. I, I want to hear a funny story from you, Ryan, about the worst sales training that you ever got. Or, or sat through, and, and what was what was so painful about it? That is such a random question that I would never have expected you to ask, which makes it a great question within itself. For those of you that are listening only, Scott just did an air pump with his fist because he's excited to throw me off. That's right. Um, Scott, <laughs> I think we found our third person to be in the booth on Monday Night Football, right? <laughs> we found our Dennis Miller, right? He's, he's given us the color. The color. The color commentary. I told you he's we're doing a three-man weave, you know? So, and I'm just, I'm just saying all that stuff to give me more time because I'm still trying to process what my uh, answer is. Um, man, I've been through some doozies. So, uh, I think <laughs> the worst is like, You've, I mean, I've had situations where the guy just goes up there and talks and talk and doesn't engage anybody and everybody's like blackout, dead behind the eyes after like 30 minutes and it's like a whole day long meeting. And then he's using like examples that aren't even relatable or relative to what those people are going through. And, or like the guy has never sold anything in his life, but he's supposed to train you how to sell and has never had any success. So I think those were the, the two like worst possible experiences that I've seen. So, and so taking those terrible, miserable experiences that probably a lot of people have been through, um, what are the things that you're focused on in your, in your own business and, and delivering training to avoid those pitfalls? And some of them are, are very obvious, but like, what are the, some of the training techniques and tactics that you're doing right now to get people fired up, to get them to learn and then apply continuously the things that you've been through and to keep them, get them and keep them engaged? Yeah. So, and I'm still building some of this out. So it's it, the answer I give you today could be completely different in like a month, you know, um, in terms of being a million percent transparent. Um, well, something that percent transparency about running off and starting your own business. Like I don't have everything totally figured out yet, <laughs> but here you are and you're, and, and you're doing it. Right. Yeah. So I, I would say the, the biggest thing that I saw the most success with the getting people engaged and wanting to learn is aligning with their vision and really what the individual wants to, to accomplish because people go through different stages of life where their priorities are different. So at one, it might be, um, you know, they're, they're looking to get married and start a family and buy a house and, and earn extra money to align with that. Now there might be, um, say they're more experienced, they're, uh, they're, their kids are going through college and they need to earn extra money for that. You know, um, or there's different like life events that trigger people to, to want more. Um, so I try and find those. And if there's not like a key, big one like the ones I just mentioned, there's usually something that they want to move towards. So if you, if you can get that in their head to link to those two things, it gets people to, to pull instead of pushing them. And then from a communication style, like um, I, I believe highly in DISC um, profiles in terms of communication and like really understand the people you're working with. I feel like DISC is making a comeback. 
I, I, I've heard it more in the last like couple weeks than I had in the last decade before that. I, I swear to God, I'm not just recycling all your old podcast uh, acronyms and terms and stuff like that. <laughs> Richard, well, Richard loves all this stuff. Oh, Richard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loves it. He loves we, all of it. Yeah. We got yeah, to so, nerd out, man. We got to nerd out on some and of this I, stuff. And it's I, it's and funny I, because I, I was I telling Sorry, I was telling Scott that I always knew how to answer the disc profile to come out as a D. And I, I went and, um, and I used an analyzer, um, not a sponsor, but a cool tool called Crystal Nose um, that does analyze you. And it tells me I'm a high I. And I was like, oh, wow, I never knew that. And it really did sort of confirm that I had figured out how to answer the competition questions and how to answer the, you know, win at all costs type questions to prove I'm a high D. Um, and then I even was able to figure out why in certain jobs, I was not as good as I probably thought I could be or should be. And I can remember that all the discomfort I felt as as me, right? And it's sort of this, you know, this fake it till you make it stuff is, you know, in some ways it works, but in other ways, you know, it can hurt you though. So, um, so I'm a big fan of all this psychology stuff. If you've ever listened. Yeah. I love that. We'll have to talk after. I mean, yeah. so like, like, and I won't go deep on this Scott, so you don't black out and start yeah. checking your email. Or I, lo- I, I love, I love psychology. And, and all that stuff. <laughs> I just agree in it. I'm not a fan of these profiling tests. That's all. That's all. Scott, yeah. doesn't, Scott doesn't like recruiters. He wants to recruit his own because he likes psychology so much because it's actually something he studied and he studied learning, right? If I remember correctly, Scott. Right. Yeah, I have a master's. So, degree. so Scott is smarter than all the tests. Is is what <laughs> how I interpret that. I don't know if that's why. He's like the human AI of all the personality tests totally. combined. Totally. Is absolutely. I think. I, I, think I, I think that's it. The human AI. I Scott, you're officially getting that title. God. I, I think more color, by the way, from our color commentator. 16, 16 years ago, I think I got given one of these tests and uh, didn't know, you know, how to answer it properly, like like you did, Richard. And uh, I think I answered it in, in a particular way, and the feedback was like, "Well, this guy's never going to be any good at sales." Uh, so you know, you know me, Richard. At that point, I'm like, "Well, fuck this, fuck that test. This thing is useless, right?" Uh, I'm, still, I'm still biased from there. Well, so here, I'll give you a, like a tangible way that that's like, in terms of my experience where it's been legit. So um, like understanding the person you're working with and like Richard's saying, you know, there's their inherent strengths or weaknesses. You could work with them in a better way. Cause like, for example, I had a rep that was a high I that killed it, was rep of the year. And then I had a rep that was a high C, which is like very detail oriented introvert that ended up doing the same thing and they like being rep of the year and they both had different strengths and different weaknesses that I had to like supplement when working with them. So like, I think, that's, that's something. Yeah. I also think too, the, the challenge I have, and I think this might be maybe underneath Scott's challenge. I'm going to analyze them a little bit is that these are, these tests are great at um, helping you figure out who the rep is, right. And how they're motivated, mm-hmm. but there's zero training to the manager on how to bring out the best in the I or the D. And we're sort of left to our own devices to figure that out. And I think that's changing now. I think that's been a big shift as we talk about the EQ, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and the emotional quotient and, 
and what that means, not only at the rep level, but also the management level, right? Like, I think that's, that's the piece. Yeah. That's, and I know that, and I, again, I've worked for Scott as, as well as with Scott. And that's what Scott knows how to do. He knows how to manage those personality types. And when he says, you know, you manage the team, but you coach the individual. I don't know a lot of sales leaders who know how to really do that. Scott, mm -hmm. Scott does. So, so for as much as grief as I like to give Scott, Scott, you know, I do know where you're good. So. He's the human AI. He's, he's going to crush that. <laughs> he is the human AI. Uh, you're going to hate me after this, this episode. So uh, anyways, but hey, so, so check this out. So there's one thing too, and I got, I got to dig into this guys, but Richard, I don't know if you saw it, but like, so in Scott, this might, you might actually find this interesting, but with the disc, there's another layer on it where it's the same line of questioning, like the same disc test, but then it, it identifies like the top values of the person taking the test. Is that the divine? Like there's disc and then there was divine. Did you ever hear the divine? No, I haven't heard of that. I gotta so like disc, it out. Yeah. disc was taught to me as like a, it's an x-ray. Mm -hmm. Divine goes into the motivation behind okay. it. Right. Richard is, you know, Richard is uh, get to the point, those kinds of things. And by the way, here's why Richard's that way. And here's how you do need to motivate them so, in those ways. So, so it's, it's one, one's the x-ray, one's the say, MRI. Is the MRI then, huh? Oh yeah. Great cool. analogies guys. So we got, we got time for two more questions. Um, so the, the first one is let's talk about ramp, right? And particularly at the enterprise level, because these deal cycles are so long. How do you, I don't know, and this is a long answer, but how do you choose the right rep that you're willing to give 10 or 12 or 18 months to get that first deal in, right? And, and you know, how do you look at it? I don't know if personality is right, if it's D's and I's and stuff. And then how do you do it at the, at the comp level too? Yeah, so it's good because, I mean, I was one of the jobs that, and I had a few over my career that didn't work out for me was because they didn't give a lot of ramp time, you know, and it, it was just like, you didn't hit your number and it's nine months in, how did you not do that? <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I've seen work solid in that situation is you almost map out like a quarter by quarter plan for them in terms of like a roadmap to get them along the way of building up their pipeline. So, um, basically, you know, like certain metrics in terms of like, let's say if you're talking enterprise and it's new rep, uh, I think you need to give them a year, like a year is a solid number. Um, especially if the average sales cycle is like nine months, cause they're not going to walk in normally and start a sales process on day one with a new prospect. It's going to take a little while. Um, the other thing is, is in terms of comp structuring is around like the pipeline and the, so like kind of the metrics component of like first appointments versus converted opportunities with both quantity and size, if you will. And then kind of look at that quarter over quarter and you could offer like a bonus component if they hit those metrics or like a guarantee if you're integrated in there. So those are a couple of things that we've done in the past that seem to work pretty well. And if people aren't hitting their benchmarks three months in or six months in, you know you have a problem and it's really crystal clear on what they have to do because they agree upon it when they sign on. So it's part of their, their offer letter. That makes sense. I want to go just barely backwards because you said something about, you know, um, I'm getting grief. Basically I've been here nine months and somebody's, you know, 
mad I didn't hit my quota yet or whatever. Like, what I want to know is how do you suss out whether you've made a bad hire when it's going to take nine to 12 months to, to really have like given them the proper amount of time to go through a full sales cycle mm -hmm. and close a deal. Like, is there any way for me to know, right? Other than just, is it just like there's no activity or, uh, you know, no pipeline showing up? Like, how do I know? Is there a way for me to know like, oh man, I screwed up. I should flush this person out sooner. Is that an impossible task in, the, in a super long sales cycle world? Well, I don't think it's an impossible task. I mean, it, it, there's a the qualitative component is you see how they interact and, and how customers align and engage with them. But at the same time, there is the numbers aspect. So it's like you're taking the quota and breaking it down into more micro components so that it's, it's just like setting a goal, right? Like if you set a goal that's very general and broad, you don't know if you hit it, you don't know what's going on. But if you give them specific metrics and they're tracking, then it, it gives you a sense of if they're on track. Um, and here's what I would say to you, Scott, that'll help out versus like, oh, this person's great in front of customers, but they never convert anything. You know what I mean? It, it kind of like, you got the tangible aspect and then you got the subjective aspect, you kind of burn them together. You know what I'm saying? So that's how I would approach it. That's great. Good. That's really solid. So we gotta, we gotta go with our last question in a minute, but before we do, uh, again, just a shout out to lead 411 with the best intent data and direct dial phone numbers as well as gong.io, um, who recently got another huge round of funding. So, um, you know, we're very appreciative to our sponsors to let us have these conversations. So Ryan, what can we do to help you? How can we do something to support you? Um, whether it's a cause, obviously, you know, please give out your contact information aside from LinkedIn. Um, you've been very gracious with your ideas, but is there a cause you're out looking for? Do you have some advice that you wanna ask? You know, we're happy to answer and support you. Yeah, so I would say like, it's been awesome to be on the, the show with you guys. And I'm really early on in my journey right now. So like, I'll ask for advice. I'll, I'll take the, I'm gonna hit the advice button. Dennis Miller's gonna hit the advice button right now. Um, I'm still in the stage where I'm growing and developing. And then the whole purpose design behind it though is to start increasing my contribution to the world and making an impact. But right now, uh, Daddy's gotta bring home the bacon. You know, so <laughs> in light of uh, that, I wouldn't say you guys are grizzled veterans, but you guys have some amazing experience or farther along this path than I am. So like, what, if you were me, right, and I'm four months in, what's, what's the most important thing you would focus on right now? And you've seen some of my stuff um, that you would, you would advise me to do or recommend that, that I connect with or anything along those lines. I would just love to hear your feedback. Well, first of all, I am hardly a grizzled veteran. At this. <laughs> I, this, this is literally my 12th month uh, on my own. So my, my fiscal year, if, I guess, if you want to call it that, will end at the end of uh, September. So Richard, this is a better question for you, perhaps, <laughs> than me. Yeah, Scott pretends to be the baby face assassin. So... Um, <laughs> So these are the things I would tell you to focus on. One, getting customers. You're gonna cut some deals early that you would never cut again, you know, in a year from now. And that's okay because you want the story. You trade out um, the, the story for the price, right? You trade out the logo, the case study. 
by default in every one of my contracts, it says that people will agree to a case study. I get a CEO quote, I get a VP of sales quote, and I get a sales rep quote. A good 50 to 60% of people don't even read that part of the contract, right? Some will negotiate it out and I'm okay with that. Um, but it also gives me leverage for when it does come down to cutting some of those deals. Like, wait, I got to use this stuff, you know, there. And sometimes they'll say, when mutually agreed upon. I'm like, okay, fine, no problem, add that phrase. But make sure that's in all your contracts. Um, I think to, your, to what you are already doing is just keep putting out quality content on LinkedIn so people know your name and your voice and, whether you, and, and at least join one community of whether it's Modern Sales Pros or Revenue Collective or Rev Genius um, or Sales Hacker, be a voice in one of those communities. It's hard to do multiple. Um, I'm running into that challenge now because everybody wants me to do stuff and I'm happy to, but I kind of have to feel like, okay, we're, you know, I could spend my, old, my whole day writing responses to shit if I'm not careful. So those are, those are the two main things that I would tactically look at. Um, I also think you need to understand what your value is, right? Like, what do you bring? Look, if you're closing enterprise deals, make your pricing needs to be at that value, not at, you know, you know maybe you take a, a small gig for, you know, under, you know, for four figures just to get a couple of logos and stuff. But after that, you're, you know, you're worth way more than that, in my opinion. So um, I'll pause there and see what Scott wants to add. Yeah, I've been trying to think of, of what to add. I, I think um, what has worked well for me is to have lots of different revenue streams and ways to bring in money. And, and this is a little bit contrary, contrarian to people who tell you just go real deep on one thing, find your niche and like just do that. Um, I don't know that I've done that and follow that advice. You know, I have advisory gigs, I have private coaching clients. Uh, Richard and I do surf and sales events, surf and sales podcasts, generates revenue. Thursday night sales community now generates revenue. Uh, you know, I wrote um, a book, I just finished writing my second. So I have all of these different like creeks and streams feeding into, you know, Lake Scott, if you will, right? Um, and and I and that, I think that really helped me like take the pressure off maybe like oh I gotta find you know X number of clients as fast as possible so I can pay the bills. It's more like no okay I, I got these little you know funnels kicking in some some cash and whatnot so I can you know take my time a little bit. Um, so I, I think diversification you know. How many different ways can you make money? How many different types of offerings can you have as opposed to, you know, not that this is you, but as opposed to like Scott only does sales trainings with this type of company on these days. Like that just feels like very limiting to me. Right. So that would be my only kind of add on is, is look at different ways that you can bring in, Revenue too, so. I will, and I will jump onto that, and I will say that Scott and I have different approaches, and I built my business differently than Scott. Yeah. And I tell you, and we talk about this. We talk about, well, how much are you bringing in? We sort of compete a little bit. And in Scott's first year, he's crushing me, like in all in sincerity. So there is some truth to this, and I believe it. And it's forced me to actually start looking at some different things differently in my business. So um, to anyone who's listening. 
I, I think it's solid advice for anyone and that, that, you know, you need to do what you need to do to be good for you. So, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's awesome advice from both you guys, some great nuggets in there. So I love it. Yeah, thanks cool. for the feedback. Well, thanks, yeah. uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us this afternoon, Ryan. We, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, stay in touch and let us know how we can support you and your, your new endeavor. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Hey, where can they email you? People want to listen. If they want to contact Sure, yeah. So um, I actually have a show that I launched called the Sales and Marketing Built Freedom Podcast. And then on LinkedIn, you connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, DM me. And then my email is ryan at whalesellingsystem.com. Cool. Awesome, man. Thanks again, Ryan. All right. Thank you.